Coming up on Garden Talk. There's enough calcium inside your tap water. There's enough of the basic nutrients you need to sustain your seedling stage, to sustain early veg, especially when you're in that living soil or no-till soil setup. My grows are a lot better since I went from a synthetic grow to a organic grow. The chlorine debate on, oh, that's killing organics, I believe is a little bit over the top. I don't think it's nearly something that we need to worry about as much as what other things out there. And the only time you pretty much need an RO filter right away is when you're maybe making concentrates. Before topping, try to bend. And if you can't successfully bend the top lower than the medium nodes, then you might have to look into topping. I'm getting better color now. I'm getting better bud density now. And I'm getting better overall terpenes than I ever had before. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This episode number 61. In this episode, I interview Derek from the Bud Lab. Some of you may recognize him from Twitch, where he hosts a 24-7 plant community. I was actually on his channel a few weeks back, and he asked me a whole bunch of controversial questions on highly debated topics. In this episode, I figured I'd flip the switch and ask him a whole bunch of controversial questions on highly debated topics. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. A big supporter of this podcast is AC Infinity. They sponsor this podcast and I use their products. AC Infinity now has gardening tools and accessories such as heavy-duty fabric grow pots, trimmers, grow room glasses, drying racks, plant ties, and trellis nets. They also have all of the equipment needed for a ventilation system. I will leave a link to AC Infinity down in the description section below, and you can use discount code MrGrowIt during checkout for a discount on their products. Thanks to Spider Farmer for sponsoring this episode. Spider Farmer has recently redesigned their SF series LED grow lights. In the old version, the Samsung diodes are close together, resulting in the light being more focused towards the center of the coverage area. In the new version, the Samsung diodes are spaced out, resulting in a better light spread across the coverage area. I will leave a link to a Spider Farmer website and their Amazon store down in the description section below, and you can use discount code MrGrowIt5 during checkout for a discount on their products. Gorilla Grow Tent Gorilla has one of the best double-ended grow lights on the market today. The DE Pro Series Grow Light has the capability to run both HPS and CMH bulbs. You'll get a 50% longer bulb life and a fixture that runs cooler due to their engineered heatsink and thermals. And on top of that, you can dial it all in with the optional DE Pro Series controller. Check out their website at growstrongindustries.com and use discount code MrGrowIt for 15% off. All right, we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk Podcast. Today I'm joined with Derek from the Bud Lab. How are you doing today? Not too bad, not too bad. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We did uh, we did a little chat over on your channel, your Twitch channel, and then uh, it ended up on YouTube. I didn't realize you had a YouTube channel. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> like weeks later, that video pops up on Recommended. I'm like, wait a minute, he's got YouTube too? I thought he was oh. just Twitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I literally, it's just my Twitch highlights. I don't do any editing. It's just a straight whatever's on Twitch goes right to the YouTube just to save it. 
Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I thought we were just going to be alive, and all of a sudden we're on, Twitter, we're on uh, YouTube, too. I'm like, oh, shocker. But yeah, we had a great conversation, man, on your channel, and, and thanks again for having me on your channel. And we talked about a lot of controversial topics, and uh, I wanted to kind of flip the script and ask you some of those controversial topics okay. for this channel. Because right. I feel like that talk went pretty pretty well. A lot of opinion-based things, right, are talking from experience. Neither of us are scientists, right? Totally. We're, not, we're, we're, we're no experts in the field. We're wannabes. We're wannabes. Scienti- <laughs> Whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> but let's have a friendly conversation. And uh, I would love for the folks that are tuning in, listening to this, to chime in in the comment section as well, right? So we have a comment section on YouTube. Let us know what you think about some of the things that we're talking about. Um, highly debatable topics. And uh, yeah, let's just let's just get into this one. So you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. But first, actually, let's do introduction. Okay, Tell us a little okay. bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening. All right, all right. My name is uh, Derek. I run a 24-7 community on Twitch called The Bud Lab. Uh, 24-7 as in literally we don't ever go offline. We've been live for over three years straight. Uh, we're just a little community on uh, Twitch and uh, loving every day of it. Uh, I've been gardening uh, for over four years now, I would say, and uh, it's an adventure every single day, always learning, and uh, I can't wait to see what the next four years are going to be. Nice, nice. So what would you say your overall style of gardening is? I mean, you indoor, outdoor, soil, cocoa, hydro, organic, synthetic. What's your style? Uh, my style, I would say would be mainly indoor. Uh, I would say I'm like a blend I, 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 between each stage of growing, I change kind of what I do. So if I'm in, uh, more of a, the veg stage, I might be more of a synthetic grower. If I'm in the uh, flowering stage, I might be more of an organic grower. So I try to almost base it per room. So my flowering room, I would say would be in my eyes would be 99.9% organic. I do have I do have some outdoor plants that I uh, uh, I grow once in a while. Uh, more of a, like the uh, cutting flowers, like uh, dahlias. I do a couple uh, uh, gardens for uh, veggies, but not too too much. Uh, I, I, mo- I mostly focus on uh, uh, the other plants. So you do have experience with both synthetics and organics. What are your thoughts on organics having a better terpene profile? Do you think that's uh, think that's true, or do you think that it might might not be true? Um, coming off of personal experience, I would personally say my grows are a lot better since I went from a synthetic grow to a organic grow. Uh, I think my uh, my rosin is better. I think my um, uh, my overall flower looks better. I think my colors of the flower looks better. I think it just overall looks better. Um, I've never gone and actually got any of my stuff tested for uh, the values of terpenes and stuff like that. I would love to and to get an actual comparison side by side. But everything that I've done in my personal experience, I truly believe that organics is the way. Now about mixing organics and synthetics, some people will will do that throughout the grow. You know, they'll, they'll yep. start off with organics, maybe like a pre-mixed soil to begin uh, then maybe they'll top dress some organics and maybe yep. they'll, uh, you know, when they start seeing deficiencies or, or whatever, they'll add in some synthetics, you know, that fast boosting totally. um, recovery. Do you have any objections to mixing organic or synthetics? Do you think it, it should be done or it shouldn't be done or anything like that? 
No, I think it's uh, if you know what products you're using and you know that there's not going to be any uh, nutrient fallout or any nutrient conflict or uh, or maybe uh, uh, killing off your microbes in your in your living soil. If you, if you are confident in the product that you're using or your synthetic product that you're using that's not going to do that, then yeah, I'd say it would be safe. Like uh, uh, I I definitely use I have a, a synthetic cow mag for if I do need it. I definitely have. Um, um, different products and kelps and stuff like that that I will use if I need it, uh, a, a kelp liquid spray or something like that, which I wouldn't consider 100% organic when it's mixed with something. Um, I, it's just really pick the products that you can find that aren't going to cause a conflict with what you're doing. I've had some really good success doing Synganics. I think that's what a lot of people call okay. it, Synganics, mixing the two. Um, you know, again, starting out with the premixed soil and then adding synthetic nutrients after the fact yeah. for the rest of the grow, you know, particularly in flower and stuff like that. And uh, I've gotten some great results doing that. Um, I don't have anything <laughs> against it. I don't think you're going to have a, a poor final result, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I know there's people who think that the first time they feed in those synthetic nutrients, they're wiping out their microbial life that's in the medium, which is just, uh, you know, not true. <laughs> That's like the uh, the chlorine debate as well, where people are like, oh, don't use tap water for it, guys, because that little bit of chlorine is going to kill your microbes. And I'm like... What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. I don't know about that. I think we need a little <laughs> bit more than just what's in our tap water. <laughs> yep. No, you're right. That's that's another uh, thing. I'm glad you brought that up. Chlorine, chloramine, that's often said to kill off microbes. So you don't think that's the case, huh? I, I do think it does kill off microbes, but I think the amount that are in the water, like the amount that people are worrying about, I don't think is the amount that we need to worry about. Like if we are just using, say, like, and there is cheaper products out there. Like we can use KDF filters, RV filters. We can do two-stage filters. We, you can let your water sit for uh, 12 hours to, lo- to evaporate a lot of that stuff. So I think the chlorine debate on, oh, that's killing organics, I think is, I believe is a little bit over the top. I don't think it's nearly something that we need to worry about as much as what other things out there. There are lots of people that have their goes hooked up directly to the gardens. People yep. are, uh, you know, even, even your irrigation systems watering your lawn. Or yeah. plants around. Totally, that's all has chlorine in it. So, um, for for that to say that's completely wiping out your micro population, I think I think that's false. Well, we're also drinking it as well, right? We drink chlorine in our water. We also have beneficial bacteria and stuff in our bodies. So, is it humans and plants? I don't want to say they're the same, but we do have to follow similar lines. Of calcium is obviously important. Stuff like that's important, right? So. That's a big debate, yeah. If you drink in water with calcium in it, I'm sorry, no calcium in it. If you drink water with chlorine in it, that you're you're wiping out the microbes in your gut biome, yeah. right? 
Yeah, and using chlorine in like septic tanks, you're not supposed to, you're supposed to be using pretty much the same microbes we add into our pots and into our, uh, our living soils, we're pretty much adding to our septic tanks to create the same bacteria in both senses to remove the negative bacteria and only have your positive. Yeah, and, and then RO water. I don't know if you have experience with that, but you hear about people drinking RO water. And I actually spent years drinking RO water, and I got so much crap in the comment section when I said mm-hmm. that because apparently there are studies out there that's saying that it, it's robbing nutrients from your body, right? Because it's like it doesn't have it's yep. not bound to anything. It's just straight H2O. So when you're drinking it, it's binding to those nutrients, and then you're, you're, it's depleting from your body. Depleting from your some, body, exactly. Some people say the same thing with plants. That you shouldn't be using RO water into your medium because it's potentially robbing the plant of nutrients. What do you think about that? Anyone who watches me knows me and my me and RO is a little bit of a touchy subject because I truly believe there's other methods before getting an RO machine. I think the RO machines are the la- RO filters are the last thing we need, and the only time you pretty much need an RO filter right away is when you're maybe making concentrates. But in growing, there's so many other things that we can use to remove a lot of these things. Uh, that RO water they think is the number one thing that we all need. Like people go out and get RO machines because they don't want calcium spots from the humidifiers anymore. But you can literally buy little tablets that go inside your humidifier that remove that calcium. And it's just called a, a demineralizer, I think they're called. Um, you can buy those. So you don't really need to put RO inside your humidifier. You can buy those, they're a lot cheaper. RO water wastes more water, and most of the time it wastes more water than usable water. So in places where water is very limited or water is very valuable, which it really is, you're you're draining, you're throwing it all down the drain. So I think there's a lot of options out there that we should be looking at before we look at RO. And there's actually a good documentary online uh, about the drinking of mineral water and it's that and they were like what you were saying they're saying that it is healthier for you to drink higher like uh ppmm water your higher ec higher uh, tds to um give you these minerals and stuff in your body and it is not safe like what you said or no, i shouldn't say not safe but it isn't not it isn't recommended to drink ro water because like exactly what you said it is pulling away from you and I've said that with growing before. I've, I've said that that I think if you are using RO water to to water seedlings or for your veg or to do this and that, most tap water is all right. Unless like yeah, okay, you're in a well or you're in a place where the tap water is not even safe to drink. And then if you're at a point where it's not even safe to drink, then yeah, it's probably not safe for your plants. But if it's within that 200, maybe up to that 300 uh, ppm my opinion it seems to be pretty safe for going through veg going through seedling stage and going through my flower at least in my setup so i wasn't aware of the tablets that you mentioned i'll have to look those up uh that that's pretty cool i didn't even realize they had those so i do yeah. run ro uh okay <laughs> cringe for you probably. Hey, hey, it's not but, it's not uh, cringe if you reuse the wastewater <laughs> hook it up to your toilet put it inside a reservoir and maybe use it outside or something right Exactly what I was just about to say is that Dago the Hut, he was on one of my mm-hmm. podcast episodes before, and he had mentioned that his, his drain line, right, that line that's the wasted yep. water is going to, he's put it into a bucket and then using it on his plants outdoors. Exactly. So yep. it's being used, right? You're not wasting that water. But yeah, for, what is it? For every gallon, you, it's draining out three gallons or something like that? It, it's it's kind of crazy. 
It's from one to one all the way up to one to five. So it's depending on what your base water going in and what you want coming out. And a lot of people are chasing for that zero. And you can get a, a you can get a one to one and come out with like a ten, like a rather than a zero, come out with like a ten ppm, which in my opinion is even better because you can't use pH pens in RO water. It breaks your pH pen, and so many people do it, and and then they come back. Why is my Blue Labs pH pen all uncalibrated? And you're like, it's because the RO water, and it says right in the manual, it cannot be used in RO water. So they always recommend put a little bit of CalMag in your RO water before using the pH. But if you already start with like a 10, not the zero, you have a little bit of minerals in there for the ion exchange in your uh, your uh, pH meter, and it works. It doesn't cause any problems. Most of these RO systems aren't actually stripping it down to zero ppm anyways. Like mine, I think, is... Uh... Yeah, I've had some that went down to 20 ppm, 40 okay. ppm. I think 8 ppm is what I measured recently. Okay. So I do have the ability to, I know exactly what you mean though, right? It's like, mm-hmm. even with uh, ppm meters, it, you're, it's not going to read it properly, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So I have a starting base water of 150. And at 150, I think it is perfect. Like seedling stage at 150, you don't need to add any nutrients to it. Because you have, there's enough calcium inside your tap water. There's enough of the basic nutrients you need to sustain your seedling stage, to sustain early veg, especially when you're in that living soil or no-till soil setup. You can be feeding no, no nutrients and just living off that living soil for, for months, weeks, just by using tap water. I wish I had that low of PPM. My PPM on my tap water comes out at 485. I so, think that's uh, the 500, I think is the last... Yep. Limit at least here for safe drinking water. Same with the states. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. So I'm right, right on the edge there. <laughs> yeah, you're right on the edge. Maybe that's why you got an RO machine, right? <laughs> but I can always, and I haven't done this yet, is is send out this a water sample to get a water sample okay. report, uh, and then I can actually see what's in the water, and then actually you can formulate nutrients around that, right? So we talked about. Oh, yep. Potentially. Uh, you know, having a lot of calcium in the tap water already, magnesium or whatever mm-hmm. else is in there, well, then I don't need to use as much CalMag, for example. Exactly. Right? So. 100%. 100%. Yep. And I think people who are using, like, in my opinion, if you are using a, a media where it is, you do have to add more calcium. Like cocoa, for an example, tap water is actually a savior almost because you're not having to add all that calcium because you're already giving it. You don't have to worry about it. And I know with cocoa, it, it, you, you might have to still add more, but you're not you're not starting with a zero. You're starting with a little bit of a base. So it's like, okay, am I way off? Am I not? Like, I like it. I, I'm a big fan of tap water. I'm, I'm a fan of RO water, but I think it, you need to be uh, re- respectful of the RO water and you need to figure out what you're going to, what are you using it for? Are you using it only for humidifiers? Because there's other options. Are you using it for an array of things? Well, then, yeah, obviously it makes sense. That's a good way to put it. Um, do you have experience growing autoflowers at all? Uh, yeah, type R in chat. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I understand I, with that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yeah, it's funny. Our viewers now. It is one of my viewers because <laughs> they don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, anytime, uh, anytime we talk about an autoflower, I yell type R in chat. Um, uh, and type R is just, uh, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but... Ruderalis, Ruderalis, which is your, uh, which is your, uh, your ditch plant, or quote unquote ditch. And, uh, that's why we say type R. So anytime we say autoflower, type R in chat. 
So comments, type R in chat. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have grown a couple auto flowers. Um, light cycle. How about that? What do you what do you think about the, the light cycle for? Some people are, All right. um, are saying that you shouldn't uh, you should give a period of darkness for the auto flowers. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I believe I truly believe that every plant needs to have a sleeping cycle. Just because an auto flower doesn't grow by a time schedule or a light schedule, sorry, it it still it still has its sleeping times. It still has its time where you can you can watch the the plant that. At 18 hours, you can start seeing those leaves start to droop down again. And at that point, in my opinion, that's when I will turn the lights off. It's already reached its DLI for that day, and we're able to it's able to sustain itself. You don't need to run it for the uh, to 24. I think the extra six or the extra four hours between that 20 or 24 hour, I think is just money coming out of your pocket, and it's not really giving you the bonus you're really looking for, in, in, in my opinion. Uh, I think... Uh, the best light cycle for autoflowers is 18.6. I've run them on 12.12, and I personally think I, you, you do get a um, you get a decrease in yield and quality um, if you're not giving it the appropriate amount of light. So if if you're giving if you have a, an under if you have an underpowered LED, it's probably better for you to go with an autoflower in 18 hours a day because you can reach your DLI and you can get dense buds. If you're growing photo periods and you don't have the best light, it's hard to get your full DLI in the 12-hour time period, just like an autoflower. So it's easier in a more budget-friendly setup to get that with the autoflower. I'm not saying autoflower is the next best thing. I think it's a, it's a place where we can finally kind of regulate everything a little bit. I think we can finally stabilize things a little bit. And we've seen that over the last couple of years with autoflowers, that it has stabilized a lot. But yeah, I, I truly back to the light question. I truly think that eighteen six is the the is the light cycle for autoflowers. I don't think it should be changed. What if you reduce the light to extend so the DLI is achieved at the twenty four hour mark? So you're lowering you your overall. Okay, yeah, so, so you still still get DLI within within the twenty four yeah. hours instead of eighteen hours. Yeah. Okay. So. It, if you're doing it that way, then then it's all, in my opinion, now it's all about light coverage. So now you have to focus because right now to get it to low enough par or low enough wattage and par, which usually equals very similar when you're looking at light numbers. Um, if you're trying to get very similar numbers to give you that DLI for the whole thing, you're either going to have to use a low wattage light with high lots of coverage. So you're still getting those dense plants over it because at for an example, if you're in a two by four ten and you've got a hundred watt light, that hundred watt light, the normal hundred watt lights are little tiny QBs, right? They're more of a, a square. It's not filling out that whole two by four. So even if you have twenty four hours of light, you might not be getting the full coverage of the of the whole plant. Only maybe one branch of that plant might be getting its perfect par or DLI for the whole day. So when you start getting down to lowering your wattage to increase your t lights time on to give you the same par. You're now looking at getting a larger light to be able to cover that whole area, to be able to grow your plants closer, to be able to get that par in that same 24 hours. And it's a lot harder. I think it's just easier just to go down to 18. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. How about transplanting autos? Are you for that or against it? Some people swear and say you should never transplant autos. Some people say, no, it's fine. I'm for it if you, if you transplant smart. So if you let your – if you – 
let the seedling or the plant fill out the first pot before a transplant is set. And I'm not saying make sure it's root bound. I'm saying make sure that when you do remove it from the pot, you're not going like this and then the whole entire soil plug is just falling apart and just dusting out, right? You wanna make sure that you can pull out the, the, the plant and it's holding the media to it itself so that when you transplant it into the new pot, using your mycorrhizae, using all that, you're, you're, you're forcing the roots to spread out into the new soil. And I think that is perfectly fine, but I think if you're or early transplanting or you're late transplanting, then you're gonna have a problem 100%. Okay, and then topping autoflowers is another hot topic is uh, some people say that you shouldn't right. do any type of high stress training. So topping, okay. you know, cutting off the top of a plant, for example, so it creates two branches coming out instead of just that one. Um, yep. Are you for or against topping autoflowers? Personally, I think with topping, it's really based on genetics. You need to have, it doesn't matter if it's autoflower or photo. I think it's extremely important for genetics. Like some plants you top and they're not going to give you what you want. The next two nodes below don't stretch like you want. And that one that you just topped off would have been better to bend it, right? So I always try to, I always try to say that before topping, try to bend and if you can't successfully bend the top lower than the lowest or the, the medium nodes, then you might have to look into topping. I always suggest with topping to clone that top, but obviously with autoflowers, you don't really have the uh, way to clone. It's more of a monster crop. So you are realistically just cutting that off and you're either wasting it, it's going in the garbage, or you are bending it down to try and achieve that larger cola in other places, not just the top, right? Rather than growing like a Christmas tree, bend it down, allow that main cola to grow over here and allow all these other spurts to shoot up here, right? Gotcha. Cloning autoflowers. Let's dig a little deeper into that. There's actually right. a guy, right. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, Bill Ward. Do you know who he is? I have heard of him, yeah. Okay. So apparently he's been cloning autoflowers and he's been getting like four plus ounces per plant. What are your thoughts on that? Is it... Is it cloning? Okay, so I've looked into, I, I haven't looked into the whole method, but I have heard of people successfully cloning autoflowers. But what I've heard they're doing is they're reverting the autoflower back to a photo period trait before cloning it. So I don't know if it's, a, if it's essentially cloning an autoflower. I don't know how he does it, but what they, I've heard they've done is they've stressed out an autoflower or they've grown out an autoflower and they've gone through or tried to go through a reveg and it can stress it out so much that it almost brings the photo traits back out. And what we've called them and what a couple breeders have called them is called that they've called them super autos where they might they might start to veg seven, eight weeks. And it's more or less like and I've, I've seen them like I've got a couple breeders that I've worked that I've talked with that are trying to grow these super autos where they veg out for like eight, nine weeks, become a huge autoflower and they kind of grow like more like a photo period, but they have the autoflower traits. I don't know how the whole autoflower cloning works i think it's more of a reveg scenario or maybe like stressing it to bring out another trait because i have seen other guys on youtube say they've successfully transplanted autoflowers but it always seems like there's a reveg involved and when there's a reveg involved it usually means it's gone back some type of traits in my opinion i'm not a breeder i don't know too much about that but from everything that i've kind of learned through being in this seat is that's kind of what I've seen that if you if you clone an autoflower, it's more of a monster crop. So it's kind of like you're cutting all these branches off, cloning them out, more or less doing a sea of green style and hoping for the best. Or you're reverting that original plant 
back to like its photo style if you can through back breeding or back crossing or however that all works and trying to reclone it through that method i think are the two that are going on again i could have butchered that but that's how i understand it <laughs> gotcha yeah i haven't watched bill's videos but it was like a recent garden talk podcast episode with somebody mentioning that they mentioned that it's pointless to clone autos because once you clone it it's going to start to flower it's still in the same time cycle so you're really not going to get much of a harvest so you can actually clone it or root but you won't get much of a harvest and then the comment section was just flooded with people mentioning uh, bill ward and what he's doing over there so i have to go over there still and check it out i would love to uh learn more about it and learn more about the whole breeding side of it because i do think that we haven't even touched base on a lot of that stuff i think like there's going to be other ways of doing breeding and and, and other ways of maybe maybe hate using this term manipulating or mutating the plants in different methods to maybe come out with another freak show or whatever. Right. Like you don't know. We, like I saw your last videos that is looking awesome. <laughs> yeah. It'd be interesting to see if more traits like that can be brought out in the future, doing different various techniques. Um, yeah. Talking now talking beyond autoflowers, leaf stripping. So defoliation, some people call it, um, some people swear that you shouldn't leaf strip at all in flower in particular. So I think a right. lot of people do agree that some sort of leaf stripping or some people consider it lollipopping where you're removing the lower third or lower, lower quarter of growth. So the bud development can focus on the top part of the plant doing defoliation to remove leaves. So liking penetrate down into the canopy. What's your thoughts on that? And then also going into flower there are people who are adamant that you should be leaf stripping in flower during some of the prime weeks of bud production. Um, and it actually helps with bud production. So I do a leaf stripping trimming from day one of flower all the way until day 21. I might push it until day 25, day 26, whatever. I pretty much try to schedule it in where I can schedule it with my life, right? I, I do think the beginning of flower I believe it's important. It's very important to uh, uh, trim and to get rid of those lowers because most of us aren't focusing on light penetration and pushing the light as low as possible, spreading out our plants as much as possible. A lot of us are focusing on trying to get the best yield and the best best uh, quantity. So they're not focusing on the into the the inside branches and all of this. So how, how I always have done it and how I try to push and try to uh, show uh, uh, my stream is from day one all the way until day 21, I pretty much do every other day, I'm taking a handful of leaves off. And I'm like what you said, lollipopping. I'm starting from the bottom, moving my way all the way up. So by, by day 21, I pretty much have a, a fully lollipopped plant or all of my plants are fully lollipopped and everything that's below either the your net or everything that's below the 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 farthest your light can travel has been removed because your leaves are your solar panels if they're not getting any light they're not doing anything they're just sitting there so they're just a home for bugs they're a home for for uh the bottom canopy um uh the bottom canopy icky stuff that you don't want (laughs) and uh uh I have been trying out different tra- uh, trimming methods of trimming from day one all the way to day 21 and then not doing anything until day uh, 42 in flower, like what you mentioned, an uh, uh, um, uh, end of flower cycle trim to try and either 
open up the, the remaining bud sites that are kind of a little bit lower on everything that's now grown out and everything because everything's now just exploded. So now you're trying to open up some of these lower bud sites for the last two, three weeks, right? Because you don't want that bud in the middle that's all squished together and all, or that flower in the middle. You don't want any of that because it's just not what you're looking for or it's not what I'm looking for. So I just remove it. You talked about taking off handfuls of leaves from day tw- one to 21 each day. Um, often hear that- Every two you, days, yeah. Every two days, okay. Yeah. Often hear about people saying that if you're doing too much training, too much defoliation, it could stress out the plant to the point it becomes a hermaphrodite. Have you come across that at all? Or do you not believe in that? Um, I've, I, I, do, I do believe in that. I, I believe that, again, it's, I think it's, it's based on genetics. So if you are growing a, a, a bag seed, if you are growing something that you don't really know where it's coming from, yeah, you might want to worry about it. But if you're growing uh, something that you have grown for a while now, that you know it's stable, that you know you can push it a little bit, I don't, I, I, I don't really see anything wrong with it. I, the only Hermie I've ever had is when I ran a green light beside uh, um, uh, one of my cameras in the, uh, the flower room. I've, I've tested IR lights. I've tested a, d- a ton of different things. The only Hermie I've ever had was from that green light. Um, so the trimming, I think maybe the biggest negative to over trimming and, and leaving a lot of the and trimming up a lot of the bottoms was, would be that if your plants aren't as healthy as they could be, or can be and your room's not as clean as it should be it's definitely more susceptible to bringing in things into the plant like uh if you have um uh, molds or if you have bacteria or something in your garden you're cutting up all these plants you're leaving an exposed source for these things to travel right into your plant right like bud rod all these different things can happen if you're overcutting, and that's why they try to tell you not to trim outdoor plants very much right because the more cuts that you have and on these outdoor, the more things that things can get into that plant, right? That makes sense. You talked about green light. I want to circle back to that because, uh, you know, they sell those green headlamps and they're like, oh, well, go into yep. your grow, just turn on the green light. Fine. Plant's not going to mm-hmm. have any issues with that whatsoever. You're, you found the opposite. You said you, you actually had plants turn hermaphrodite from the green light, right? Yeah, it was actually crazy because what I did is I wanted to display uh, – the trichomes forming on a plant in real time for people. So on my live stream, I put a camera right up to, to it and I put a, a green light right above it. And the green light is because the camera I was using didn't have any IR for night. I used the green light at, it was, it was, it was a one watt smart LED and I had it dimmed to 2%. You couldn't even really see the green on it. It was so low. The only thing that could see it was the camera. And only one branch on the whole entire plant hermied, and it was the branch that I was trying to macro. It was the only one, and it's this strain I've nice continued to grow today. I've cloned off of that one; it hasn't rehermied. I have; it's one of my best plants, and I've never had any problems with it now. And the only thing I can say that it was from was from that green light. I have seen the green lights that people put on their headlamps or on their head, and they go in their garden this and that. I think they work if you're going in there for like five minutes, ten minutes. But then at that point, is five minutes of light on or if you opening the door for five minutes and taking a couple pictures really doing harm then to get that green light and go in there and make sure that you're Inspector Gadget with the green light? I don't know about that. Wow, that's super interesting. Good little experiment that you, you chose to do and that was the result you got from it. So interesting mm, to hear. That was, 
if you look at the very beginning of uh, my stream three years ago, all of the nighttime photos and nighttime footage was all green. Now it's all gray because I've upgraded to IR because IR doesn't ca cause certain uh, wavelengths of IR doesn't cause any problems. So the wavelengths of IR in security cameras or most security cameras, I should say, is good for, for uh, uh, plants. And I wouldn't say all plants because I have tested my greenhouse and I've tested some of the outdoor cutting flowers and I have noticed that some of them that are near the IR at night are growing four times bigger than the ones that aren't growing near the IR at night. But it doesn't seem to have any uh, effect on, uh, on my indoor. It only has effect on, like, the um, uh, glad. I think I, we noticed it with the gladioluses last year, which is a very beautiful uh, cutting flower. kind of looks like a, uh, uh, kind of like a Christmas tree. Very, very, very tall. Like a lupin almost, if anyone knows what a lupin is. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, spectrum manipulation that was on the list here. Mm -hmm. um, anything else in regards to spectrum that you think are maybe controversial that uh, that we missed there? I mean, we touched upon IR and green light a little bit. Anything else? Mm -hmm. UV, um, UV stuff. Yeah, UV. Uh, we're looking into a little bit of UV. Trying to, I'm trying to learn a little bit of it. It, it right now or two years ago. All these LED companies were coming out with these UV diodes on their on their uh, on their HLGs or on their Samsungs or whatever the heck uh, lights people are using. They're trying to sell this UV LED, UV LED. And all of the research that I could do on is that these UV LEDs were at a third or an eighth of the lifespan of your full spectrum uh, uh, diode. So you're buying this LED that these UVs are only gonna work for maybe one or two grows and then they're gonna die out, but then you have this light that now is supposed to have UV, but it doesn't have UV. So I think two years ago, they started changing into uh, different bulb style lights because they started realizing UVA and UVB work better in bulbs rather than LEDs. They seem to not have the technology for LED. We are coming out with it, definitely coming out with it. But for growing right now, it seems like the best UVBs you can get are in still fluorescent bulb styles. They're the ones that seem the best. Um, people are now testing UVB in flower cycles to try and increase the terpene percentages for concentrates or and try and increase the overall trichome resin percentage so they can get more return on their concentrates. Um, people are trying uh, it with like turning on UVB uh, or UV light uh, two hours a day in mid, mid flower cycle or turning it on at two hours at the end of your flower cycle or turning off all your flower lights and then turning the UV on just for an hour and then turning back on your flower lights. Similar to how people are using IR 15 minutes before turning uh, lights on and 15 minutes after turning lights off to try and send your plant to sleep faster and to wake up your plant faster. People are testing all these different theories of different wavelengths and this and that. Uh, I think it's all trying to manipulate the sun as best as we can or try and figure out what we can do better than the sun. The plant grows awesome um, uh, uh, in under the sun, but it what can we make what can we do? What spectrum can we add? What wavelength can we add? What can we do extra that can make it even better? Yeah, I mean, you said it pretty well there. The sun is kind of limited to that one spectrum, right? It's like we, we have the exactly. ability to change the spectrum and change the morphology of the plants. So there's still a ton of studies mm -hmm. going on in regards to this. I, I'm sure this is something that's going to be happening for the next five, oh. ten plus years, seeing what the, what the spectrum does for the morphology of the plant. So I'm excited to see what, what outcomes in the future. Well, you know? well it was crazy, too, because 
four years ago, three years ago, every it was if you wanted a if you wanted a flower dedicated light, you were getting a light that was around three thousand kelvins, right? Um, uh, which is your would you more of a, a a red spectrum, right? More on the red, more on that yellowy red spectrum, not so much blue, right? And then you would use the blue spectrums for your veg, right? But now we're starting to realize that that's not really what it's what we're trying to do anymore. Is you see a lot of these flower lights that are coming out now that are at four forty five. 4,500 Kelvins, or they're at 5,000 Kelvins, trying to push as much blue light as possible on those flower, and they're offsetting it with IR and red now. So they're saying, okay, let's maximize the blue spectrum as, as much as possible because we know blue is counts for leaf growth, the, the, the node spacing, this and that, right? And then, then now let's throw it with some IR. IR does very similar to blue, but on now on the red spectrum, right? And it can also create bud density, and now we, over, uh, we now because now we have IR and now we have blue. Now we're getting way too much. We're almost getting too much stretch. It's not. It's almost an offset now. So now we add a little bit of red just to create that perfect balance. And like with the lights that I use in flower, they're thirty. No, they're fifty three hundred kelvins. Four years ago, people would be like, "Why are you Why are you flowering with veg lights?" And I'm like, "No, I'm getting better color now. I'm getting better bud density now, and I'm getting better overall terpenes than I ever had before." It's crazy to see that so shift. Yeah, it's really crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's flip it up. Let's talk about flushing. Hot topic. This was, okay. uh, I actually All right. uh, <laughs> I actually went on my Instagram and I did a story and asking people for these controversial topics for this particular talk. So shout out to those folks that mentioned flushing as one of them. Um, that was on my initial list, but uh, there was a ton of people that want to know your thoughts on flushing. So what do you think about flushing? What's your thoughts on All that? All right. Okay, so the term flushing is thrown around with way too many definitions. And I think some of the definitions that are being thrown around are a little bit out of, out of the ballpark. And some of them are, make sense. Some of them make perfect sense. So when I think when I think of the term flushing, I immediately think of revival almost. Anytime I need to flush something, it means my plant is in an oopsie state and I need to fix it. Is the way I look at flushing. So I am trying to remove a buildup in the soil so that my plant isn't uptaking that overabundance of, of nutrients that's in there. So I'm not removing the nutrients from the plant physically. I am allowing the plant to eat what's already being uptake, what's already inside its system, and I'm removing it from the soil. Because the way I look at it is that your soil life is the most important thing in my grow, is that if my soil is healthy, my plants are healthy. There's no way, from everything that I've learned and everything that I've done, there is no physical way that you can remove what's already in your plant. So if you're at week nine and your plant is is obvious signs of, of way too much nitrogen you've got the curling leaves you've got it's so green that you can like see yourself in it because it's mirroring back at you and you're saying oh i'm just gonna throw a, a, a 10 liters of water in it right now and, and harvest it in a week and you're saying oh that's just gonna remove all those nutrients that's in that plant to give me a better smoke that's not happening and we just need to get that out of our our brain because that's not happening and it's never gonna happen the way what flushing is is that we are adding water to whatever we need to do to revive it, to repair it, to start it over is what we're doing. If 
how I grow because I grow with top dressing and I, I, my last top dress in flower is at six weeks of flower. I don't feed anything except for water the last three weeks. So a lot of people look at me and say, Oh, you're flushing anyways. I'm like, no, 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 no. I top dress. It's slow release. Meaning I top dress six weeks, meaning takes a week to start to slow release. So by week seven, it starts to slow release into the roots. Now the plant's uptaking it. So by week all week eight, it's getting full nutrients. And then by the time week nine, week 10, when I harvest, it's pretty much ate up all the nutrients in the, its soil to the point where it's now where I need to start adding it again. So it's depleted all the nutrients. And that's when I harvest. It's when it's depleted all the nutrients in the soil, not me trying to force the nutrients out of the plant because that just doesn't happen. And it is a daily topic on TBL. I think just the term, I think, is just not used correctly because I just think people are thinking it's it's physically removing it out of the plant, which is not. It's I think if we just ter- change the term of flushing to like revive or like final step or something like that, I think it would make a lot more sense. And then going into like the flushing products, like there's a lot of products out there that are literally advertising this flushing stuff. Like put it at the end of your grow because you'll, 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 it'll do this and this and this and this and this. Right. And you're thinking, okay, like how is this working? And then you look at a lot of these products, they're, they're, they're humic, they're fulvic acid based or they're magnesium based. And all that stuff does is it breaks down what's already in your soil and it allows your plant to uptake it, or it allows you to get it out of the soil faster. So that's all that stuff does. It's not doing anything to help break down your plants, nutrients in the in in the cell walls and this and that it just doesn't work and i'm just hoping that the term flushing changes to the point where people are realizing flushing doesn't create white ash white ash doesn't mean quality uh, uh smoke high um resinous plants will produce more of a black ash than a white ash and it's just known and that doesn't mean it's a lower quality plant it means it's full of resin which is perfect for extraction if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. There have been studies that, that back up what you say as far as it doesn't change the nutrient content in the actual plant. There have been leaf tissue tests done on flushed versus unflushed plants, and they didn't show a difference. You know, So if you're flushing your plants at the end of the grow or, or stopping nutrients at the end of the grow for a week or two weeks, there was no difference there. Um, now, you mentioned for organics – you're feeding on week six or so, right? And so you you, you have that slow release and the, the plant is basically fed all the way up until you chop it down harvest. You know, you mentioned you also grow synthetics. Are you feeding synthetics all the way up until harvest or are you stopping feeding at a certain point, like a week before or two weeks before so the plant will start to senescence? You'll start to get a fade happen before harvesting. A fade happen. Uh, if I'm using synthetics all the way through, uh, uh, before I went to what I'm using now, I, I was using more of, I think it was called a veganic mix. So it was like, it was organic to the point where they couldn't add the vegan solution. So they added a synthetic variable to it. So that's what I used to use. And a lot of the guys who watch me can still use this same stuff. And they are growing some of the nicest, nicest plants I've seen. A lot of them don't flush at all they push it right to the end i do think not feeding the last week i i, I think is, is is smart i i i because i do think you don't want to harvest at a, a completely green plant i think it makes sense to harvest a plant that has a natural fade to it like 
it, it just makes perfect sense too because when the plant is naturally fading it means it is putting itself in the final life stretch means it is it is trying to push out more trichomes the the, the, the trichomes on the plant the resin on the plant is its defensive structures or its defensive mechanism so that when it is fading it the plant is signaling itself that this is my end this is my end i have to reproduce to either get myself going which is why i would pump out more resin to try and get pollen stuck to me right or we pump out more resin because that's the stuff that we want right so in turn that anytime i look at a fade in a plant that means in my opinion that means that plant is stressed or that means that plant is ready to go so when the plant is ready to go that means in my eyes it's already in its in its in its final stage of pushing out those trichomes pushing out those colors doing whatever you need to to try and get the best possible plant in direct relation to that ice flushing another thing that people do in order to stress their plant at the end like you mentioned what are your thoughts on ice mm-hmm. flushing i think it's like an old old method maybe that it's not the roots that you're trying to freeze more or less to bring out the color it's it's you're, you're a lot of the color is associated with just the cold temperatures on the plant itself not so much the the roots so if like the way I look at a lot of people, but added the ice to the flushing to try and stress it out, to try and bring out cooler, to bring out these cooler colors. I, I, I stressing any type of stress at the end, I think is going to be a positive, but I also think there's some that don't really work. And there's some that do work. I think people who are stacking all these different things, like doing the ice flush during a 48 hour uh, uh, darkness, during um, uh, a full um, in-pot trans, uh, in-pot drying cycle or something like that, right? Like, I think stacking all these things to try and increase the stress to try and over, try and get a better product, I think is maybe doing a little bit too much. I, I, I think if you want to try and bring out colors or try and stress it to bring out colors, it's better for you just to put an AC or something in there. I don't know if the ice bath personally is going to really do what you want. Okay. Now, how about the old stem splitting technique? You heard about that? Yeah, I, I have people sticking like pencils and stuff through the actual stock, and sticking like Lego men through the <laughs> stock to try and increase the uh, <laughs> increase the stress. Um, I don't grow big enough plants inside to to split my stalks like that. If I'm growing a plant outside where my stock is big enough to split like that, I would be worried for bud rot. Like I would be like the number one thing that you get outside around here is bud rot in your plants. And it, it goes through like broken, like if you break a branch, it'll, it'll climb right through there and it'll go, it'll affect that whole branch. Like, or um, like, so I don't really try to do too much of any type of breaking, cutting or anything on my outdoor plants on indoor. Like I said, the, where I grow, everything is so short that it's just not something I really looked into Again, it's it's an old technique, just like the ice flush. That I think there's other methods now that probably do the exact same thing without having to drill a hole through the side of your plant. <laughs> All right, last one: bud washing. So you've harvested your plants, and you uh, have gotten to the point where you wash your buds. Are you a bud washer or no? So bud washing, I suggest. I always suggest for everybody to do bud washing. Like I know I have a lot of guys now who watch who do bud, they wash all of their bud, their indoor and their outdoor. Um, it's something because dust, for an example, organic, some organic nutrients is a powder. It's literally a powder. And most of that powder is ground up bone, ground up manure, ground, like ground up things that 
that are blowing everywhere. It's it's and washing bud. If you're doing it correctly and you're doing it where you're you're washing it and then putting it into a controlled space so you are drying it appropriately after, can come out with perfect perfect bud. If you're doing it sloppy where you're just, oh, I've got, I've got WPM, I've got issues, I've got issues, i got to quickly do this, and then you try and dry it in the wrong conditions, you're probably just causing a, a, a worse effect on it. I've personally, I actually did a test last year on uh, a plant. Uh, we had a storm that came through and it knocked over one of my, uh, one of my outdoor plants, and I had to... Um, I, I wasn't able to fix it in time because I was on vacation. So one thing after another, the whole entire plant pretty much got infected. So what I did is I cut off because with bud washing, they said, oh, you can cut off all visible signs of bud rot. You can cut off all visible signs of WPM, cut off all that stuff and then throw it through the bud wash. And then it'll it'll wash off, off all the spores, off all that stuff. So that when you do dry it, it doesn't regrow. So. I went through right on stream in front of everybody. I went through a full hydrogen peroxide bath and I sat there and I was not being, I wasn't being light with it. I was being a little bit tough with it because I wasn't caring about ruining my bud. I was caring about wanting to see if this worked or not. I, I knew for a fact that this plant had bud rot on it. I cut off every visible sign that I could possibly see. Every single one of the branches went through a perfect hydrogen peroxide, a lemon and baking soda, and then just a, a freezing cold water and then at the end i even sprayed them all down just to try and make sure of any anything in the inside i put it into an environment that is that is more of a dry environment so it's less than 50 percent rh and you want to dry in a 60 60 environment yes i understand that but when your plants are soaking wet from from oh after a wash you don't you want to make sure that your rh is low for the first couple of days so stuff doesn't have a chance of regrowing and then slowly increase your RH to that or your RH and your temps to that 60, 60 or close to it. 60 RH, 60 Fahrenheit, right? What I found with the, the washing is that even in that dry environment of that 45 RH to, to 50, in four days, all of the, every single one of the branches that I took off that, that, uh, that plant and did a full wash, every single one of them had bud rot again in four or five days. Because... I either missed a single spore and I couldn't get it and it took off again or I missed a single spore of something and it took off again or whatever or I wasn't I I you, the 40% humidity wasn't low enough or I didn't have enough fans on it. So I think if you do it correctly to the point where your bud is not so dirty, it will work. But if you've got WPM all over your bud, you've got bud rot all over your bud, I personally don't think that even if you cut it off, I do not think you're getting all of it off. I think you, if you were to test that bud after the full wash, I still think you'll have counts of micro, microbial bodies on it. You'll have, it'll, it'll show up. It might not, it might not uh, decline or not pass the testing, uh, um, or it might pass the testing, sorry, but you'll still have some counts of something on it, in my opinion. From everything that I've tried, WPM is a huge problem here in uh, Ontario. And it is every single outdoor plant you put outside, you are pretty much going to have WPM. You need to, you, you, you need to use some type of um, spray, labs, some type of spray to get rid of it to protect your plants or have genetics and plants that is resilient to that stuff, right? So 
that was the one thing I had. I, I, the, the, the plant was perfectly fine all year until the storm came through, and then all of a sudden the, the bud rot got into the plant, which is what happens, and then it goes through the stalk, and then it takes off from the inside out, and then you kind of get to the point where you've now got this plant that virtually or visibly, visibly doesn't have any bud rot, gone through a whole wash. You think there's none. You dry it. You, 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 you jar it or whatever, and all of a sudden you start fucking – or you start – grinding it up or whatever like that and you've now got uh some little bits and stuff inside it and you're like what is this what the heck is this there's a couple things that might have made it worse is that the washing might have sent it in even farther and if you have really dense buds you might have sent a spore or whatever in a little bit farther and it might have not been able to get out of it because the trichomes and stuff on the outside of a plant is almost like it's sunscreen so when you do put this branch inside water it's almost like the water it's hydrophobic almost and it's not until you really shake it in there where you actually get it where it might be going into the center of these 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 flowers right if you're not really beating up your bud i don't know if it's really getting or gonna get rid of that or we have to use higher amounts of uh, hydrogen peroxide which then starts to kind of count well you're losing you're oxidizing all your terpenes you're oxidizing you're causing a lot of negatives this and that I, I'm not against bud, uh, bud uh, washing. I just think that if your plant is too far gone, I don't think suggesting bud washing is the best thing to do. I think suggesting getting rid of it is probably better because I, I'm, I, I'm so big on, on molds and this and that. The reason why I grow is because I don't know where others is coming from. I know where mine is. So if I have a problem, I, I can address it. If I I don't know where that problem is. I, there's no addressing. And then I have that paranoia factor, right? So anytime I see any bud rot, any WPM on my plant, that plant immediately becomes a learning experience for me. And I try to do everything I can to get rid of it, either using lab spray, milk spray. And if I can't, no hard feelings for me. It, it goes in the garbage. I'm not risking it for me. I'm not interested. Wow. What an episode. We talked about uh, a bunch of different controversial topics, <laughs> man. And, and you had... Uh... I was interested here that you had a lot of experience doing some of these small things, like with the green light, for example. Um, you had some good findings there. With the bud rot, you had some good findings there of experiments that, that you did yourself in order to come to the conclusions you came mm. to. So that was pretty cool to hear. Um, so wrapping things up, how can the listeners find you, and what do you have upcoming in the future? They can find me on uh, Twitch TV slash The Bud Lab. They can find me on every other social pla- uh, social media platform, the Bud Lab, <laughs> um, I, I'm uh, I'm I'm live twenty four seven. So there's always something going on. Uh, now that it's summer uh, coming here, our outdoor garden is going to be opening up. Uh, we're going to get lots of plants out there, which is going to be exciting. Uh, we actually have a virtual uh, water gun during the summer, where anyone in the chat can actually turn on this water gun and, and uh, shoot squirrels or shoot me or my wife walking by when we're in the garden. Uh, which is always fun. Um, uh, I am. Uh, I have uh, next week. Uh, we have uh, uh, a little bit of a, an interview, actually, that you might be interested in, with uh, more of a, uh, a lab talking about bud rot, talking about microbes, talking about WPM, talking about the, the, what you can and can't do. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in that. But uh, like I said, uh, <laughs> like I said to Chris earlier, I, I'm. Uh, I'm uh, my uh, my own little uh, guy over on uh, Twitch. People call me the uh, the Mr. Growit of uh, Twitch over there, and uh, <laughs> people think we're brothers. Or something. We always uh, we always have some fun. 
Yeah, I think they do, eh? That's hilarious. <laughs> Brothers from another mother. Well, I'll definitely have a link to your Twitch channel down in the YouTube description section below. And if you're tuning in on one of the podcast platforms, just Google him, The Bud Lab. He'll come up on the search results. If you enjoyed this episode, click that thumbs up button. Also, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Every single weekend, I'm releasing a new Garden Talk podcast episode, and I'd love for you to tune in to future episodes. Derek, thanks so much for coming on, man. Totally appreciate it. This was super fun, and I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. You guys have a great, uh, a great day. Thank you. Peace out, everyone. See you in the next stream.